Welcome back to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast. This is Juan Zarati along with Chip Ponce. And we're incredibly honored to have with us today Danny Glazer, who's not only a close friend and colleague over the many years that we've worked together, but now a principal and partner at Finn. So, Danny, welcome. Chip, great to see you as always. Great to be back. Thanks, Juan. And, and uh, absolutely thrilled to be welcoming Danny to FinCast and to Finn. This is going to be a great conversation. What we want to do uh, today is just uh, introduce Danny, uh, get his thoughts and reflections on what has been a storied uh, two-decade career at the Treasury Department. Danny ended up his career as the Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, and over those two decades found himself in the middle of some of the most important policy uh, and technical issues that the Treasury Department had to face. Um, he was head of the U.S. delegation to FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, uh, and Chip and I were honored to work with him at Treasury. So we want to talk to Danny about what he's done over the last two decades, what he's seen moving forward, and frankly, we're incredibly excited to have this conversation with him. So Danny, welcome. Thanks, Juan. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chip. I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited to have this conversation, and I'm really excited to get started at Finn as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. Hey, Juan, can I, can I maybe uh, make a suggestion? Uh, our listeners probably don't know that Danny had uh, an absolutely historic send-off uh, last week at the Treasury Department, and you and I were greatly privileged to be a part of that. Thank and, you, Danny. And I really liked what you had to say um, in that send-off about uh, Danny Glazer as a legend, literally a legend at Treasury, because of what he did while he was there. And Danny's not going to talk about it in those terms because uh, Danny's just not going to talk about himself that way. But I think, it's, I think it sets a really good context to explain to the listeners why um, Danny really is a legend at Treasury, and uh, not only um, what he did while he was there, but the challenges that Treasury confronted that Danny was a part of, and the opportunity that, frankly, the three of us had um, to be there at such a formative time to help shape what is now so clear to everyone as a, as a financial integrity and, and uh, TFI and Treasury speak mission, but that was far from clear when we all met each other way back when. And uh, maybe if you can just give a little bit of a, of a summary of, of that, and then we can turn it over to Danny, that would be great. Yeah, I'll make it very quick because I know Danny's going <laughs> to blush, so listeners should realize Danny's already blushing. Um, and this is, uh, Danny really is a Treasury legend. So for those who are familiar with the space, who understand the Treasury Department, Danny Glazer is a well-known figure. But for those who may be new to the space or, or may not uh, be as attuned, uh, Danny Glazer has become part of the, the fabric of the Treasury Department and the way that it has dealt with the thorniest of national security and policy issues over the last two decades. Uh, he helped uh, to build the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence that is now the cornerstone of how the Treasury Department uh, wields financial power and influence around the world. He was a leader internationally, building coalitions in the FATF context, bilaterally, multilaterally. He led efforts to deal with and to crush ISIS financing at a time when uh, we had to accelerate those efforts. He's dealt with Iran, North Korea. And I remember, Danny, in your office, uh, you had a collection of the of the rogue state currencies, currencies from places like North Korea and Iran, uh, precisely because you had to deal with these countries directly. And so... Um, Chip, to your point, any part of any part of the Treasury mission in this space has had uh, Danny's fingerprints all over it, uh, and we saw it, we witnessed it, we were privileged to to watch that. 
Um, and he really is. And I, I meant what I said at the Treasury Department in the cash room. Danny is a Treasury legend, and it's the kind of name that will live on in the halls of the Treasury Department uh, for, for years to come, given the impact that he's made. Uh, kind of like Chip Ponzi, but um, uh, that's why I'm honored to, wor- to work with both of you and to be your friends, but um, to be your friend. But let's let's turn to Danny. Let's let Danny uh, do the talking here. Uh, Danny, you've had two decades of experience. Uh, can you just give the listeners a sense of what that evolution has been like, uh, both within the Treasury Department and in the space of illicit finance, sanctions, um, and, and dealing with rogue actors in the international financial system? Gosh, I really am blushing. Uh, thank you, guys. That was really that was really nice of you, and I really appreciate it. Uh, and I just wanna just wanna say I, I I I do think I played a big role in a lot of these developments. But but Juan, you played a big role, and Chip played a big role, and there's a lot of people, um, uh, both who are still currently at Treasury and 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 former Treasury people, uh, who played very very important roles in all of this. And if I sat here and tried to name all of them. Uh, I would. Uh, I think we would take up the the entire length of the podcast. It'd so be the Academy Awards. It like would like be the Academy Awards. But uh, I do. I do want to make sure uh, that uh, that I underscore what a big role the whole team at Treasury has always played in this. But it has been a fascinating time, and it was a historic time, a historic moment uh, to be at the Treasury Department. And what we've done over the past 15, 20 years. Uh, there's been a revolution, and I don't think it's a, I don't think it's an understatement, an overstatement to call it a revolution, uh, in um, in how this country and how the U.S. government and how the world thinks about and approaches international security and national security, and the role that financial tools play in that. Fifteen years ago. The Treasury Department was not considered a a national security agency. The Treasury Department did not have a seat at the table on a regular basis on the most important national security issues uh, that the U.S. government faced. The organizations, the international organizations uh, that dealt with terrorist financing, that dealt with money laundering, were not very prominent and did not have a, 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 a large voice in how the international financial system was structured and what the rules of uh, participation in the international financial system um Uh, how they work. That all changed, and it all changed relatively quickly. And it changed largely because of the work we did at the Treasury Department. Um, Now it's impossible to think about a national security issue or an international security issue without thinking about the financial component. You can go down on all the major international security and national security issues uh, that this country and the world has faced over the past 10 or 15 years, whether it's Iran, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Russia, whether it's Syria, whether it's uh, the fight against terrorism, whether it's the fight against uh, drug cartels, uh, whatever the issue is, um, the financial component, the financial tools that get deployed to advance our goals and to promote our security, our security as a country, and our collective security as an international community, there will always be a financial component um, to that. Sometimes the financial component is at the center, like it was with respect to Iran. Sometimes it's in more of a supporting role to the work being done uh, by the diplomats or done by the military, uh, certainly as is the case uh, with the with the fight against uh, ISIS. But in each case, there's an important financial component, and that's uh, what uh, I think this government, uh, the, uh, this country, the United States, has learned uh, that we have... Uh, that we have these tools at our disposal and that we can deploy them. Uh, when, again, when, we, when I started, when we started, uh, 
the money laundering laws uh, were were saw were 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 viewed as um, sort of that uh, we played a supporting role to law enforcement in their fight against drug dealers. That was really that was really, that's really the origin of all of this. Um, but in the late '90s, and it was Larry Summers when he was secretary, um, who really who really sort of had the vision for this, who really saw where this all could go. Larry Summers um, f started to articulate a new vision for the international financial system. And when he would talk about the international financial system, he would talk about pillars. And there were different pillars to the new international financial architecture. And one of those pillars was um, anti-money laundering. We didn't even talk about terrorist financing at the time. This is before 9-11. One of the pillars was anti-money laundering. And why that was so important and why that was such an important insight um, from Secretary Summers was, as I said, before he said that, all our efforts on money laundering were really in support of the Justice Department and important work. And they do important work, and we, and we should be supporting them. And we still do support them, of course. Uh, but when Secretary Summers said that anti-money laundering is one of the pillars of the international financial architecture with a view towards protecting the integrity of the international financial system. Mm -hmm. What he was saying was that there is a separate Treasury Department finance ministry interest in the fight against money laundering, separate and apart from criminal prosecutions, that we had our own separate interests, that we own, had our own separate perspective, and that we had our own separate tools that could be brought to bear to advance those interests. And that really was the birth of the entire field of illicit finance um, as a separate and independent field. And from that point on, um, we didn't even see it. We thought it was, we knew it was a big statement at the time. We had no idea where it was going to take us. And following that, you had 9-11 and the expansion of uh, the fight against money laundering to include the fight against terrorist financing. Um, you had uh, the development of the new office in Treasury to bring all these tools together under one roof in the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. We brought intel together with law enforcement, together with sanctions, together with policy, together with um, all the uh, dialogues and contacts that we as a finance ministry have with colleagues around the world, both in the private sector and in the public sector. And we brought that all under one roof with the, in, with the uh, purpose of developing and implementing strategies uh, to uh, advance U.S. national security. And you could think of it in two ways, both offense and defense. On the defensive side, we, uh, and still do, I, I'm speaking past tense, but this work is still going on at the Treasury Department. On the defense side, uh, we would identify vulnerabilities in the international financial system um, and try to close those vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities that made the financial system uh, uh, vulnerable to abuse by fill-in-the-blank. Who don't we like? We don't like drug traffickers, and we don't like terrorists, and we don't like weapons proliferators, and we don't like rogue regimes like Iran or North Korea. Kleptocrats. Kleptocrats. Um, it's not hard to figure out who the United States doesn't like. We're normally pretty pretty open about it. Um, and so... Um, on the defense side, how do these how do these people, how do these groups, how do these countries access the financial system? And then how do we close the financial system, make it less vulnerable to that access? That's defense. And then on the offense side, it's identify, disrupt, and dismantle uh, the uh, financial networks that support, again, fill in the blank, same groups. So how do we deprive them of access to the financial system? Defense. How do we undermine the financial networks that they use when they already have access, offense. And then the really fun part is when you bring the offense and defense together and you start developing really, really complicated and sophisticated strategies um, to have impacts on countries 
uh, and targets um, that people never thought we could have an impact on before. I spent the first seven years of, uh, of, of the financial campaign against Iran listening to people tell me uh, that it was impossible uh, to, for sanctions to have a substantial impact on Iran. And now, as I always say, the only thing everybody agrees on with respect to the Iran deal, including the Iranians themselves, is that they came to the, they came to the table for sanctions relief. It's the only thing everybody, everybody agrees on. And it's universally agreed. And, th and that was the orthodoxy, right? The orthodoxy was sanctions, financial pressure doesn't work. We've had decades of it. That was the, the mantra sanctions with respect to work. Iran, with North Korea. What are you guys even talking about, right? So, And, they, and, and critical to pointing that out are, are, is, is recognizing that they did work in an operational capacity precisely because TFI and the U.S. government uh, were able to coalesce different pieces of the TFI mission to include the AML component and the financial transparency and accountability that goes with that, the, to include the intel coming in through uh, the intelligence community, to include, obviously, the sanctions expertise at OFAC, to include the international relationships and expertise brought to bear by TFFC into uh, a, as you say, highly sophisticated strategy that is, is off, all too often often thought of as a sanctions only without really understanding that it's that dynamic that TFI brought to the table that gave sanctions operational effectiveness where others don't have that. I, I think we want to get back to some of these particular campaigns because, you know, Danny, you and Chip uh, could speak sort of uh, for, for years on some of these, these issues in terms of campaigns. But I think what, one of the things that's really important, and, and again, I'm privileged to sit with two of the grandmasters here on this, is you, you two were really part of building the international architecture and thinking broadly and strategically about how international cooperation needed to evolve in this space, along with the Treasury Department and along with these campaigns, but also how the systemic elements of what we're doing long term actually have operational and tactical impact. The, the things like uh, beneficial ownership uh, rules and customer due diligence and the things that seem very mundane uh, but are actually fundamental parts to the transparency of the system that makes these things possible. Can you can you guys just, I think it would be great for the listeners to hear you guys reflect on how you thought about the international dimensions of, of your work and the system and the evolution of that systemically and, and why that was important. Well, I, you know, I think I think it's a really interesting question. I think uh, Chip touched on uh, part of the answer to it uh, just now. Uh, when people uh, from the outside are looking at one of these issues, whether it's Iran, whether it's North Korea, whatever the case might be, uh, our efforts against terrorist organizations, the focus tends to be on, on, on sanctions because they're relatively intellectually straightforward uh, tool. It's something people understand. It's a word that's that's very, very familiar to people. It's an overt uh, act that's done um, with some immediacy to it. Um, and they are important. They're extremely important. Sanctions are extremely important. But the reason why, uh, particularly U.S. sanctions, um, are so effective is because of a lot of other work uh, that's done at, at places like the Treasury Department and in finance ministries and central banks around the world and in organizations like the Financial Action Task Force is ensuring that those sanctions are implemented, that those sanctions occur within a rules-based international financial system uh, that is transparent um, and that is uh, working uh, in conjunction with legitimate governments around the world. 
And only in that context do sanctions become truly, truly reach their true potential and become something more than simply glorified press releases where a country just gets to sort of name and shame. Uh, normally the target is beyond shame anyway, so what, what, what difference does the shame make? Uh, and actually get to something that's really causing an operational impact on the targets. And it's because of the work that's done um, to develop anti-money laundering standards and to ensure that they're implemented at financial institutions around the world and at a broad range of international at, at a broad range of financial systems um, to understand uh, that there needs to be enforcement mechanisms to ensure that governments um, and countries around the world are implementing these standards and forcing their financial institutions uh, to implement those standards and then to ensure that we anticipate the ways that these international standards can be undermined through uh, distant disintermediation through forms of non-transparent, um, deceptive financial practices, whether it's the use of shell companies, um, the, the, the use of uh, trusts or the, you know, things that have perfectly legitimate uses um, but can be also used uh, to, um, to shield the identity of, uh, of people uh, who, who really need to be brought to light. Uh, and so that is, it's incredibly complicated work. It's incredibly grueling work. Um, and it's not always sort of the sexiest work, but it is what distinguishes the finance ministries and the finance ministry perspective on these issues. It is why uh, the Treasury Department needs a voice in these issues. If it weren't for that work, the Treasury Department might have a view and the State Department would have another view. And they're the State Department. They're the ones who, could, they're the ones who legitimately should be, uh, you know, uh, setting our, our, our foreign policy. But what separates the Treasury Department is that we understand the intricacies that I'm talking about, the intricacies of the international financial system, the intricacies of the rules, and we help set the rules, and then we have to follow the rules. But we understand that, and that's why it's sometimes I know to people seem sort of magical uh, what happens, <laughs> but it's, it, it's, it's not magical. It's actually the result of a lot of hard work that people don't see when they're just focusing um, on a sanctions announcement. Uh, and I, I completely agree with all of that. Uh, what, what I think is interesting, Juan, is... Um, uh, when you look at Danny's storied career, that uh, he has touched all aspects of, of the mission and the sophisticated underpinnings of what appears to be a pretty simple sanctions construct um, and, and all the time that I've known him. And uh, when I first arrived at Treasury, when, when, when I came in to work uh, uh, under your leadership and then Danny's, uh, Danny was, was knee-deep in the revision of the FATA 40 recommendations in the early 2000s, where the focus really was um, very much on strengthening the rules with a degree of specificity that could be operationally meaningful in enhancing financial transparency and accountability and the expansion uh, of those standards at that time, being overshadowed in many ways by the uh, introduction of the special recommendations on terrorism financing, where, where ironically I sort of got my start, where you were chairing that working group, and, and I was uh, helping you in that process with um, some of the special recommendations, and in particular on sanctions. Over the course of uh, Danny's career, uh, moving from that very clear expertise and, and leadership in the AML arena uh, into the dominant face of policy globally as far as um, how sanctions work and how you implement them and how you how, how you how you put together the international co coalitions that give sanctions um, their reach their impact um, and having that uh, that expertise woven into a background of 
of thorough understanding of the AML side. Daniel's career has really reflected that. And, and the last piece of this that he had also mentioned, um, well, there, there, there are two other pieces. One is how you hold jurisdictions accountable for implementing these standards in a way that allows them to be uh, trustworthy partners in a, in a financial system built, built on rules. And certainly, when you look at the NCCT process, um, the listeners may not recognize, but the blacklisting process. It's called the, the ICRG process now. Yes. You, the, you, the both NCC, of you, both the, of you uh, the, reconverted the, it. Yeah, yeah. So, so the NCCT <laughs> process that was born in the late 90s, right, the blacklisting, it was resurrected as the ICRG process, as Dan's just noted, in the mid-2000s under Dan's leadership. So, you know, you, you look at that spectrum from understanding um, the technical detailed work without which sanctions and financial transparency and accountability do not exist to um, the evolution, expansion, sophistication of sanctions to the accountability um, across jurisdictions in a global financial system that wasn't just about isolating a rogue actor like Iran or North Korea. It was also about putting tremendous pressure on countries, including the United States, and follow-up processes where um, we were, as Danny said, we bet we are primary beneficiaries of a rules-based system. We have to follow those rules. The work that we've done on beneficial ownership, on customer due diligence, um, on non-bank financial institutions, um, uh, in certain aspects of supervision um, that are critical to making the rules effective and, and implementing those rules consistently. We've worked very hard as a government, as you know, um, because of the pressure that uh, was put on us to follow those rules. And, and likewise, the G7, the G20, um, and, and the work that, that's done in the blacklisting process to put pressure on countries to conform to rules, uh, systemically much more important than what people may view as, at the end of the day, isolating rogue states, which clearly is a different component and a part of that process, but only one part of it. And, and Danny has been instrumental across that spectrum from financial transparency to targeted use of financial measures to holding jurisdictions accountable um, across the board, uh, responsible actors as well as rogue actors. And it's a remarkable span when you think of it in those terms. It's an interesting point because it, it makes me uh, think back to when we started to really operationalize the use of Section 311, the Patriot Act, the designation of primary money laundering concern. One of the first jurisdictional uses was against Nauru. Um, and a lot of people didn't quite understand why in the world are you even focusing on Nauru. And part of that was to get at the systemic problem of, of shell companies. Uh, most of them coming from Russia, right? And it's actually Shell Banks. Shell Banks. Shell banks. Yeah. That's right. Sorry. Shell Banks. And quizzical looks at even in the halls of the Treasury Department as to why we were even wasting time, right? And it was, I think, a lack of recognition of exactly what you've just described, Chip. Um, some of our listeners may say, look, this all sounds wonderful. And certainly no one can argue that the Iran campaign and, and other things that the Treasury has done over time uh, have been successful using different metrics. But um, there are a lot of problems out there still. You had the Panama Papers revelations. Uh, you've had uh, problems with Russia, both being a partner in these issues and then subject to sanctions. China being a part of the rulemaking body with FATF, something we, we worked on together to bring them into the fold. Uh, but lots of questions as to whether or not their financial system, whether or not their government actually subscribes to these rules. You know, how, Danny, maybe starting with you, how do we how do we think about sort of the imperfection of the system and, and where where we sit now, especially given that a lot of banks have been held to account, a lot of revelations have come out that the system sometimes doesn't work or doesn't look like it works. Well, I, th I think the important thing to remember is 
just how new all this is. This really does remain a, a work in a work in progress, uh, a work in process. You know, the United States was the first country to criminalize money laundering um, in any form, and that was in 1986. It's pretty recent. Before 1986, money laundering wasn't a crime anywhere in the world. Um, and everything started to build from there. The first international obligation uh, to criminalize money laundering was just drug money laundering was in the UN Vienna Convention, uh, 19, I think 1988. FATF was informed in, in the early 90s. The first international standards relating to how you implement that, those obligations began to be promulgated in the early 90s. And then by the late 90s, you have Larry Summers talking about um, these standards being important to the integrity of the international financial system. That's new. That's that's. That this is this is all like this all. Maybe I'm getting old, but this all feels like yesterday. <laughs> kind of feels like yesterday. You are getting old. You got a little gray. Right, no, I see the gray, gray coming. in the beard. Um, but the uh, so so of course you know of course we're still learning as we're going uh, going along, and of course we're still getting better. I do I do want to just say I do think that the Chinese um, are very strong members of the FATF, and I do think. Um, uh, that they're committed to implementing um, anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing standards within the Chinese financial system, uh, but it's uh, you know it's it's pretty challenging. This is something that uh, China was sort of late uh, uh, late entry um, into FATF and late entry um, into this. But I I think that uh, when you look at the the work that's being done in places like the People's Bank of China to implement these standards, I think there's a lot of really smart people there uh, doing a lot of really hard work in in, in that area. The uh, but you know there are problems. There are, are problems that need to be addressed. Uh, there's problems uh, with respect to ways the system is still not being able to catch you know catch the bad guys. And you, both you and Chip alluded to some of those issues relating to how do you identify beneficial owners. Um, you know issues of how do you cover certain financial institutions that are inherently hard to uh, you know difficult to regulate. Uh, whether it's uh, uh, money service businesses or other uh, other similar types of organization uh, types of institutions, so you have problems like that, um, and then you have problems um, with respect to how regulators and uh, law enforcement, justice departments around the world, how do they understand what these obligations are and 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 enforce them with respect to institutions, and then how do institutions bear the cost of all of that. Um, and what is a rational reaction by a financial institution in terms of implementing its standards and managing its risk? Um, because at the end of the day, that's what all this is for financial institutions' perspective. This is all about risk management. Um, and this is a new kind of risk, relatively new. They've been dealing with credit risk since there have been financial institutions. Um, for thousands of years, financial institutions have figured out how to, how to think about the management of credit risk and all sorts of other types of risk. Businesses have been managing jurisdictional risks for as long as there have been businesses that have been do, that have been in multiple countries, um, but these risks, these 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 illicit finance risks, are new, um, and they're still being worked through. And it's still very hard for some banks and some other financial institutions to understand and think about it. And it's still very hard for some governments um, to think about it and how and understand how they should be um, implementing it. Are they doing too much? Are they doing too little? Uh, so it's. It's kind of what makes it a cool, fun, interesting field. Um, it, it's what made it so fun to work on um, at the at the Treasury Department, understanding that in a large way we were really making this all up as we went along, and we still are. 
Um, and it's going to, you know, and it's, and, and I think it's an interesting area to be in, in the private sector as well, because it really is a problem solving exercise. Very much. And Wonk, I just add to that. Um, the, the premise of your question, I, I think is really important because there are certainly uh, listeners and, and, um, and friends, uh, let alone sort of skeptics that might look at, at what we're describing as the evolution of, of the mission um, through the lens of Danny's career and say, yeah, but so what? Because there are the problems that, that you've articulated and some of these problems seem to be growing rather than shrinking and is it really working? And to, to me, the, the sort of broad-based answer to that is that um, those challenges are emerging not because of but in spite of the work that we've done and that the work that Danny's career represents um, has put us in a position to address those challenges. The, the challenges that I see on, on the horizon they, and that we grapple with now are very much um, exacerbated by um, two independent events, the globalization of the economy and the globalization of financial crime. Uh, the fact is that what may have been a luxury of international cooperation in the mid-'80s and that was increasingly seen as a necessity for uncovering um, financial transactions related to drug trafficking organizations that were cross-border is now um, a, a reality for any criminal organization worth going after. It's a reality for not the Fortune 100. It's a reality for small, medium enterprises um, that have legitimate business interests. When you look at supply chains and, and, and customers from uh, mid-sized firms in every country around the world, they're getting things from countries all over the world. They're sending things out to countries all over the world. Financial um, uh, intermediation is a reality of the modern economy, and it's a reality of modern crime. But for FATF, there is no framework for dealing with that. There is no governance. There are no rules. There are no, no standards. There is no expertise. There's no experience. There's no familiarity. And, and so while I don't say that as a defense um, to those who look at this and say we have challenges, I say that as thank goodness that we have those, those, those rails, that architecture in place to deal with what is very much a moving, a moving picture. And the last point I'll make on this is that you and I have heard a, a million times, and Danny has as well, and he's going to hear a lot more in private practice, <laughs> that um, uh, we don't get a timeout to fix this. And, and uh, re-engineering the car while it's going 60 miles an hour or the plane while it's in flight, something that we hear all the time. Um, when you think about what I've just said and, and how quickly the global economy and the financial system have changed and, and the face of financial crime as, as a part of that, um, to, to anticipate that we're not going to have existential challenges to the mission is foolish. Of course we are. These are dramatic changes. Um, and, and yet, changes that we expect institutions like law enforcement, regulators, analysts, and diplomats to just deal with, with uh, 19th century or even 20th century technologies, um, I think is a mistake. It's part of, as Danny said, why it makes, makes the mission so exciting, because it's going to be not just evolving policies and technologies, but it's going to be creative thinking about how you apply those to deal with the changing face, the constantly changing and accelerating changing face of the global economy, the financial system, and financial crime. And we have the assets, we have the tools, we have the infrastructure that Danny has helped build. And it's a question of how do we apply and adapt those to, to meet the challenges that you're describing. So, Jeff, that, that's actually a great segue to sort of the, the next issue I wanted to maybe ask you and Danny about, which is what's happening in the environment um, in terms of adaptations and, and innovation 
that is interesting. And, and one way of looking at this is, you know, what what are the targets of these campaigns doing? And Danny, you most recently had to deal with ISIS. You've had to deal with Iran, North Korea. What, what are some of the adaptations that the bad guys are engaged in that you've seen? Um, and then, you know, what are what are some of the systemic vulnerabilities emerging? We, you know, you've got free trade zones and, and, um, and uh, you know, pockets and, and corners of the international financial system that that you know to your your collective point have not been exposed yet uh, to the light of transparency and accountability um, you know so what's happening both tactically in a way on uh, on this Danny and also uh, systemically and, and maybe both of you guys can reflect on that you know it's funny because in a way uh, the answer to to the question is is sort of infinitely complex and in other ways it's it's actually ridiculously simple I like to I ask did, those kinds of questions. No, it's a very <laughs> simple answer. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's certainly not a simplistic question. The uh, Chip, I'm going to quote. I'm going to quote. I'm going to quote Chip. Back to Chip. Uh, go, go on. No, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to do a Chip Ponzi riff right now. The Chip always likes to say that there's there's really only a finite number of ways to move to transfer value. There's like three or four ways to transfer value conceptually in the universe. There's only three or four ways to transfer value. You could transfer it through a bank. You could transfer it through another type of financial institution. You could transfer it through cash. Or you could transfer it through trade. That's it. That is it. So sometimes people talk about, um, you know, innovations and, uh, you know, all sorts of new adaptations. There's nothing new under the sun in the sense that those are the only ways. Nobody yet has identified another way to transfer value. Now, within each of those categories, it becomes very, very complicated, though. And there's all sorts of new. Uh, so within each of those, it becomes infinitely complicated. And then, you, again, there's the same old things. I mean, shell companies, you know, you know all sorts of different ways of hiding your identity um, when you're engaging um, in, a, in a transaction to try to engage in an anonymous a financial transaction or a transaction uh, where it uh, becomes very difficult uh, for people to be able to get to the sort of get behind it and understand uh, its uh, its its purpose or or, or who's actually controlling uh, controlling the finances. Uh, again, it's these these are a lot of the same old ways, and people just come up with new and innovative uh, strategies to accomplish uh, the the same the same um, objectives. Now, of course. Uh, as technology progresses, there's new opportunities for them to do these same old things. And so there's all sorts of interesting conversations that then spring up around new payment systems, um, internet-based payment systems, uh, Bitcoin and payment systems digital like currency, that, digital yeah. currency. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, – and, and these, are, these are challenges for the regulators and the challenges for law enforcement. They're challenges uh, for everybody associated with the financial system to try to think about, to try to, to, try to work through. So as I said, in a way, it's really, really simple. You're going to do it one of these four ways, um, and you're probably going to do it um, in a manner reminiscent of the way it's always been done, trying to hide, trying to create a non-transparent uh, fi financial transaction um, so that people can't get, get behind it and know who's doing it. Um, and then there's the old ways, and then maybe there's some new ways um, as well. Is there, is there anything in particular, Chip, you can answer this too if you want, Anything in particular that bothers you in terms of any of these innovations? For example, uh, the proliferation of free trade zones, is, is, that, is that troubling in any way? Is there something that both systemically and in terms of 
you know, kind of threats that you've seen, Danny, that, that, that concerns you moving forward? You think people need to pay attention to? I don't know. I, I, I certainly don't think free trade zones are a problem in and of themselves any more than um, any sort of, say, like offshore sector. Yeah, any offshore sector, and you could think of the, a free trade zone kind of as an offshore, yeah. offshore sector within a country. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't think there's any inherent problem with any of that. I certainly am all for free trade. I just, uh, you just have to make sure you just you can't use the existence of a free trade zone or the existence of an offshore financial sector as an excuse not to not to appropriately regulate the sector. You could say, well, we're going to have a different tax structure. We're going to have a different sort of set of rules in certain areas to promote certain activity that we would like to see, but that can never be an excuse uh, for not having the anti-money laundering rules, the counter-terrorist financing rules, the other sort of financial integrity rules uh, to apply. They have to apply. Uh, and, uh, and and what we see too often is in, in certain jurisdictions, um, they don't apply um, as well. Or sorry, I'll tell you, then there are other jurisdictions where they actually apply even more strictly, and there are some very, very clean, uh, good places to do business. So um, again, I don't think uh, I don't think free trade zones or, or offshore sectors are necessarily problematic as long as they're being uh, regulated uh, appropriately. What do you see? What do you think? Yeah, I I, I I think it's a great point and and something I've heard Danny say often in uh, in our work together that um, uh, what is critical to ensuring effectiveness is that however the structure is uh, presented jurisdictionally, sectorally, product-wise, service-wise, institutionally, that if it is functionally representing uh, a financial uh, transaction engagement relationship in ways that have, as Danny said, uh, ultimately can be reduced down to fairly simple concepts, um, then you have to play by the rules. And so as long as um, free trade zones or other uh, areas of opportunity um, are not seen as an excuse for a timeout from the application of the rules that we've developed, the rules of the, of the international financial system, particularly with respect to financial integrity for our mission, th then, then all, all is fine. And part of those rules uh, requires, and this has been strengthened in Danny's tenure at Treasury um, and in part under mine, um, is the very clear requirement that new products and services have an assessment of vulnerability associated with the anonymity that Danny's talking about so that if you have a new currency, a cryptocurrency, if you have a new technology like a digital ledger, if you have a new um, uh, opportunity associated with a, a deregulated free trade zone, fine, but the services, the products, the, 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 the innovations associated with this should build in a risk assessment as to um, vulnerabilities associated with the anonymity that bad guys will take advantage of, and that that uh, vulnerability is addressed through appropriate safeguards in the in the introduction, and then um, the the marketing of of that tool or that opportunity. Um, I do want to say, with respect to your your original question about you know what what how how do technologies that may dis be disruptive uh, be seen here as as not just part of the problem, part of the solution? And there's no better advocate for this than you, Juan, and you and I have done a podcast on it. But uh, when I look at, at sort of what bad guys do for a living. I uh, couldn't agree with Danny more about the, the fact that anonymity is always the enemy to accountability and, and, and the tracking and tracing that we rely on in the financial system. But um, there's also a, a typology, I, I would add, of mimicking that, that is increasingly frustrating. For bad guys that are really good, they do both, right? They, they hide who they are through intermediation, through shell companies, through 
um, through fronts, et cetera, but they mimic, and so they don't stick out. And, mm-hmm. and, and this is where uh, the new technologies, I think, can really be exciting because if you can get into technologies that can distinguish uh, at a level of granularity segmentation where mimicking becomes more um, systematically identifiable. And exposed, yeah. Yeah, almost too good to be true, as we've heard from some technology folks who say, look, one way to hide is um, you you know exactly Perfection. What, yeah. yeah, you know exactly what, um, you know, a restaurant in Miami that's cash-based, what their signature looks like, and you're running that exact same signature, only it's perfect all the time. That's something that a machine can pick up probably better than a human. And if you have the type of technology that we talked about in, in the technology podcast, these are things that now you can systemically sweep for in ways that, um, as our good friend David Asher says, it's, it's, it's sort of like Skynet and, and, and HAL on steroids, but in a good way. In yeah. a good way. I want to make sure everyone understands. It's this, very, these very are, scary this is, to some listeners. This, 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 is, this, is, this is the good HAL <laughs> and, and, and the good Skynet. Yeah. But, you know, it, some would it, say there's no such thing. <laughs> and and there's, a whole, there's a whole podcast to be done around, around uh, policy issues associated with that type of capability. But, what, but what's clear is that, is that those technologies have benefits that we should be capitalizing on, in addition to introducing um, you know, the potential for uh, additional vulnerabilities that we have to watch out for. Uh, let me, um, again, another good segue. Let me, let me raise this issue uh, that is talked uh, a lot about in policy circles and certainly in the private sector about de-risking. And uh, the argument uh, often made is that, look, a, a negative externality, a byproduct of all of this great work that you guys are talking about, um, you know, the, the idea of financial exclusion of rogue capital. Danny, to your point about a defensive posture, is really creating a risk environment in which legitimate actors, banks, financial institutions really don't want to take any risk in what they perceive to be a zero-tolerance environment. And that means they're going to get out of business in difficult places where levels of corruption are high or they don't want to do business with particular kinds of customers or get out of particular business lines in general. So, Danny, you've done a lot of thinking, a lot of talking, uh, a lot of sort of policy work in this space. So is Chip. What what's your sense of where this debate is, and and how valid some of those arguments may or may not be? Well, I, I think the de-risking is is a largely uh, misunderstood issue, um, partially because there's things that we genuinely, as an international financial community, still have to learn about it. But I think also partially because I think there's been a lot of sloppy thinking uh, uh, that has been uh, brought to bear with respect to de-risking. I think first of all, de-risking is almost always, or actually, I think I think we're getting better on this now, but certainly over for 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 the last few years, de-risking was almost always discussed in the context of anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing um, implementation, the costs of that implementation, um, and uh, and the uh, as you say, the perception, um, although I think not the reality of there being zero tolerance, particularly among U.S. regulators and U.S. law enforcement authorities, and I think that's demonstrably false. But at least there seems to be the perception that there's a zero tolerance policy. The what I think needs how how I think de-risking needs to be contextualized is understanding that financial institutions, large financial institutions around the world, are reassessing their global footprint for a whole wide variety of reasons involving all sorts of profit uh, calculations and all sorts of operational calculations. Certainly compliance costs play an important role in that, but it's certainly not the exclusive role. And any time 
Uh, and I think there's a tendency anytime a major financial institution pulls out of a particular market to immediately start saying de-risking, de-risking, de-risking. And that may or may not, depending on how you want to define de-risking, uh, that that may or may not be the case. What I think is also interesting um, about about the de-risking issue is we've you know financial regulation 101, financial supervision 101 um, is risk-based, is saying that we think financial institutions, and we could talk about this in terms of of of, of AML CFT risk, but we could talk about it in terms of anything, need to understand um, their risk, uh, manage that risk, and if they don't think they can manage that risk. Get out of it. That supervisors have been saying that for 25 years. For 25 years, that wasn't de-risking. That was financial regulation, financial supervision 101. Understand your risk, manage your risk, and if you can't manage your risk, get out of the risk. Um, now, all of a sudden, that seems to be the definition of de-risking, um, and that seems to be problematic. When in some ways, um, it's uh, it's the kind of process that we would like to see financial institutions go through. Now, where it does become problematic, and I don't want to say that there's no issue, because there is an issue, and AML-CFT regulation does play a role in it, not the exclusive role, but it does play a role in it, is when um, there's not really an attempt for a variety of reasons, some understandable, some less understandable, when there's a, 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 a there, there's there's just a, an automatic reaction to exit um, large market segments very, very quickly. And then that creates all sorts of negative externalities, particularly with respect to financial inclusion, which is very important for a variety of reasons to governments, even if it might not be particularly important to the financial institution um, that we're talking about. And I think what it all boils down to is the difficulty to price risk, um, particularly in terms of anti-money laundering and terrorist financing, for financial institutions to be able to really say, OK, this is what it's going to cost me. Um, to protect myself from this particular risk. These are the potential downsides, and this is what the price and value of those downsides are. And this gets, as I was saying before, into the fact that this is all so new. Because financial institutions have been pricing risk as long as there's been financial institutions. That's kind of what they do. That's like what they do, is they price risk. Um, and, and, and yet it seems to be such a challenge to do it in the case of AML-CFT. And I have to tell you, I don't fully understand why. Um, but I think that the more work is done on it, the more financial institutions think about it, um, the more we may see financial institutions come around that, that are more willing to take on this risk, who are willing to put a price on it. Um, I think you're going to see this stuff shake out over time. Um, I really do. I, I, I see this. I, I, I think we may have already even hit the sort of high watermark um, of the de-risking issue. And now it's going to become a problem-solving exercise as to what type of uh, financial institutions and how are these financial institutions going to service um, underserved populations or underserved communities or um, underserved segments or underserved corridors. Um, and there's going to be solutions for it. And it's going to be the, you know, in partnership with governments, it's going to be ultimately the private sector that's going to work, work through this. Yeah, and I think we're we're beginning to see those opportunities emerge. And I think I think you're right, Chip. You've done a lot of thinking, writing, talking about this too. I mean, and you've also talked about this pricing phenomenon. And I think part of it is that financial institutions see this almost as existential risk, right? It's 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 almost you can't price this because the reputational dimensions of getting it wrong are just so catastrophic. And so there's there's been a little bit of that reticence to price it, but. How, where do you think we are in this de-risking debate? 
Thank you. Thanks for that question. And, and uh, how much time do we have? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll give you now four minutes. So I'll, I'll try to be brief. <laughs> I, I agree with everything that Danny said, uh, as, as usual. Um, one thing that he said that I want to pick up on is um, potentially reaching the high point of, of, of the de-risking uh, sort of phenomenon. I don't know that I agree with that. I, 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 hope, I hope we've reached the high point or the low point of the ignorance around it, because I, I think Danny's right that there's been sloppy thinking um, along with what are, what are very strongly held views, um, not necessarily informed views, but strongly held views about uh, the mission of financial integrity, the roles and responsibilities of the different stakeholders to the mission, and, um, and, and, and who pays for this at the end of the day, um, whether customers or institutions or governments or some combination of this um, cost-sharing uh, uh, arrangement um, that, that, have, that have large consequences in sort of the pocketbook for, for different stakeholders. And so that's led to a combination of ignorance and, and different motives that make, this conver- that make the de-risking issue particularly complicated. And I do think we've reached a high point, or maybe it's, it's, it's a low point of, um, uh, of, the, of sort of the the unknowns or the ignorance around the debate, and that, as Danny has said, people are now becoming more and more informed about what are complicated issues, and that um, should not be simplified as, oh, this is this is AML-CFT, and this is the externality that we have to pay for for implementing AML-CFT. I think people now understand that that's not true. It's a much more complicated question. But I'm not sure that we're, we're, we've, seen, we've seen the end or, or sort of the, the, the peak of de-risking, because I think what happens, and, and, and I could be entirely wrong here, um, that uh, as people now are starting to become more informed about the complexities of, of de-risking, there, there, there will be more consideration um, and true consideration over whether it makes sense to be in certain markets, um, taking into account um, the, the, the true complexities of the global economy, uh, the business strategies, um, and the costs of following the rules, understanding the rules, including AML-CFT, in ways that may, may facilitate more specialization. And uh, so, you know, you think about this in the correspondent banking context, where so much of the de-risking debate has centered, and the reality that, um, as uh, at least as I've come to understand it, so much of the correspondent relationships were were created at a time when it was it was literally cost-free. You know, when you had opening of global financial markets and you had um, the advent of SWIFT, and everyone could go get a SWIFT, uh, you know, a SWIFT um, uh, key, and 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 it was really a cost-free exercise, and you could get a handful of letters of credit. Um, for a couple of your customers, and there was really no price point for that. Um, and I think a lot of the re-risking around uh, the de-risking and uh, the debate with the global banks is, is a recognition that there's not a lot of upside in, in, in this for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now there's an introduction of potential downside. And the question becomes, in trying to price point, price point this out, is, is there a market for a global bank with some of these sectors? And the answer is, to be, to be seen, but what we've seen so far is not necessarily. To Danny's point, that doesn't mean there isn't a market. It just may not be the market that we've, that we've come to recognize. And so I think you're going to continue to see certain markets that we've taken for granted re-risk and reconsider their business strategies in a way that will, will lead to exiting more relationships. But I'm entirely confident that that will be filled and is being filled by new players because the market's going to settle there will be price points for access and for services that people are pulling back from, and others will see opportunities in. The, the challenge is that it's messy. It's not always timely. There's, there are collateral consequences. 
but they are not consequences. They're driven by AMLCFT. It's this complexity of, of business interests and compliance interests and, and, and the, dyna the dynamic nature of the global economy that, that, that ultimately has to be considered. And as that picture is, is better understood, that there will be more um, exiting and more entering of the market that will make it um, an interesting place to watch and certainly um, important for policymakers to understand. So um, obviously looking forward to contributing to that ongoing discussion and, um, and facilitating uh, the introduction of financial relationships that minimize collateral consequences of, of, uh, of exiting relationships and, and put people on a, an, into a position where they can use the financial system for the full set of services that we want to see it provide. Danny, um, we have just a few minutes here, and I want to close out maybe with a question and then, and then kind of bookend this um, as we've been tracking your two decades of, of uh, service at the Treasury and, and looking forward to uh, what comes next and certainly in the illicit finance field, reflecting on a lot of uh, big, big-time issues. Um, you've also focused not just on big sort of headline issues like North Korea, Iran, ISIS, terrorist financing, uh, but you and, and Chip and, uh, and others have focused on uh, banking centers in places uh, like Lebanon and relationships with, for example, the Mexicans. Um, can you reflect a little bit on the importance of, of some of those engagements? You've spent a lot of time uh, as well with Gulf partners. Why those, those attracted your attention and time and, and why those are important relationships in banking centers? Well, I'm, it's it's – each one of those, each one of those uh, jurisdictions or regions presents its own sort of fascinating set of issues and an and interesting set of challenges. Uh, the fact is that uh, the international financial system, at least as we currently conceive it, and as I hope it's conceived of uh, for, <laughs> for for forever, um, is that uh, is that it is a it it's a it's a global system. Uh, that is operating under um, the same set of, of standards. Obviously, the rules are going to manifest themselves differently in different jurisdictions, but the same set of standards, um, and that's allowing for the for the uh, free flow of capital all around the world to advance prosperity and to to help people and to help uh, uh, people uh, have better lives. Um, that's the that's the promise of the international financial system, and that's the promise of the economy, the international and global economy that the international financial system is the backbone of, is the fundamental supporting backbone of, and that's why it's so important uh, that uh, we, uh, when I was in government, but I, I, be <laughs> I believe this is a private citizen as well, uh, do everything uh, that we uh, that we could to strengthen those relationships between the United States. Um, and countries around the world. Um, and we did an incredible amount of really important work and fantastic work uh, with the finance ministry in Mexico to ensure the interconnectivity of the Mexican economy, uh, the U.S. and Mexican economy, and the U.S. and Mexican um, uh, financial system, and to ensure uh, that um, we were all doing everything we could on both sides of the border to uh, to. Uh, strengthen um, the, that relationship and have that relationship have the cooperation be um, as strong as possible both in the in the public sector and in the private sector um, uh, to ensure that, that that those transactions were as clean as possible always understanding always understanding uh, that uh, that the bad guys are going to find ways into the system uh, that's not the that's not the question the question is whether you're doing everything you can to prevent it and I, I would say the same is true say with Lebanon um, a jurisdiction that has its own 
set of issues and challenges uh, in, in Lebanon's case. Um, uh, and again, um, we've done incredibly important work, particularly with the Central Bank of Lebanon, to ensure that that remains, and it is, a well-regulated sector and a sector um, whose financial institutions uh, can be regional and, and global leaders. Um, and uh, is with the, the work we did at Treasury was important with that. And again, you could go set region by region. The Gulf has its own set of challenges, which are different from Mexico's yep, challenges, yep. which are different from uh, uh, Lebanon's, uh, Lebanon's challenges. Um, and, and again, there's been some really cool stuff that's happened um, in the Gulf over the past 10 years um, and, 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 and real strides uh, that have been made by, uh, by the authorities um, in the Gulf to ensure um, that, that they're doing what they need to do to protect their financial systems and in so doing, make sure that those financial systems um, are integrated um, in the region and integrated throughout the world. Danny, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Um, uh, Chip and I have a favorite uh, sort of uh, reflection that, that you uh, you have shared with us before. You shared it in the cash room the other day that kind of uh, speaks to the scope and the evolution of the Treasury Department and the, the various Treasury secretaries that, that you've served under. And I think is a really kind of interesting way of thinking about the evolution of the space. Frankly, it's a good way of bookending this this podcast. Uh, we've got a lot more to talk about with you, and I imagine that listeners are going to want to hear a lot more from you, especially now that you're on the outside, Danny, and maybe you can speak a little more freely. Um, but uh, you always speak freely and speak your mind, so that's not an issue. But um, we've got a lot to deep dive on uh, in the coming weeks and months, so we'll have plenty of opportunity. But um, can you maybe just reflect as, as we close out the podcast on the evolution of, of thinking through the eyes and, and through the accomplishments of the Treasury secretaries under which you served. Sure. So this is a little—it's a little riff that I do from time to time um, when I reflect on my time at, at, at the Treasury Department, and I—I I, I do think it—it—it it, it helps understand the evolution that's happened uh, within Treasury, and and that Treasury really led over the years uh, within the U.S. and within within the entire international financial community and the international community as as a whole. And uh, I served under under seven different uh, Treasury secretaries, um, from uh, Robert Rubin uh, through through Jack Lew, and uh, each one, when you look at each one, each one made a unique contribution, I think, to the evolution of this issue, and it sort of traces um, the increasing importance, sophistication. Um, uh, that uh, that illicit finance took on over the years. So you go back and, and, and you look at the first secretary I served under, uh, Robert Rubin, and he was the first secretary of the Treasury to give a major address. He did it at the Summit of the Americas. He gave a major address on money laundering. It was the first time anybody would know that a, a Treasury secretary was interested at all um, in the area of money laundering, and he gave a major address on it. And that was a, a, a really important moment. That sort of announced that the Treasury Department was interested um, in, in the issue. Still very much, though, um, in the context of a law enforcement support type of interest. Uh, but nevertheless, if it, it, it was if it was important enough for the Treasury Department, uh, for the Treasury Secretary to give a speech on, um, it obviously reflected a, a considerable effort within the department as a whole. Then uh, the next secretary was uh, Secretary Summers, and I um, already discussed earlier uh, his contribution, which uh, was really to create the intellectual framework um, for everything that was to come after him on this issue by uh, asserting uh, that AML, that anti-money laundering, was a pillar of the international financial architecture with the purpose of protecting the integrity of the international financial system. And you say that, and you don't mention a crime anywhere in there. That had nothing to do with law enforcement. Um, 
that mission was also still remaining and still important, but we had a separate Treasury Department-focused mission to protect the international financial system from abuse, um, not necessarily just from crime, but from abuse. Uh, and that was Secretary Summers' contribution. Uh, Secretary O'Neill uh, was the NEST secretary, and he was the secretary during 9-11. He really led uh, the Treasury Department's uh, uh, early um, efforts um, to incorporate um, counterterrorist financing into what was already a burgeoning um, field of anti-money laundering, um, and certainly uh, the early efforts of the Treasury Department to attack the financial networks um, of al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. Um, and this is where you first start to see the Treasury Department assume its role at the table um, in national security uh, discussions. He was uh, succeeded by Secretary Snow, who was the secretary who founded uh, the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, uh, along with Congress and, and President Bush, of course. Uh, and that uh, was sort of the the, uh, established, the the understanding that there really needed to be a, a central focal point within the department that brought all this together, that brought all this thinking and strategizing and authorities and uh, together under one roof. Um, and that, uh, that, you know, in some ways, people sometimes point to that as the beginning. I, I point much earlier to the beginning, but that was sort of the, the formal beginning of, uh, of, what, of what we have today. That was the structure that we continue to exist, that continues to exist to this day. Um, he was succeeded by uh, Secretary Paulson, who was really the first secretary to fully grasp the strategic possibilities. It was uh, under Secretary Paulson's uh, uh, inspiration and leadership that we began to develop, for example, the uh, our Iran pressure strategy. That was under direct instruction from Secretary Paulson um, to say, let's see if we could take all of this stuff that you guys keep talking to me about um, and uh, and use it to pressure Iran. Again, in a, in, in a moment in time when the conventional wisdom was that was impossible to do. Um, but Secretary Paulson truly saw the strategic possibilities of it, um, uh, and he was, he was great. Um, and then, of course, he was succeeded by Secretary Geithner. Um, those of us who were there for that transition from the uh, Bush to the Obama administration were a little bit worried um, that uh, maybe this, all this illicit finance stuff would, wouldn't be embraced by the new crowd. But uh, when Secretary Geithner asked Stuart Levy, who at the time was the leader of the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence and one of its founding fathers, um, to stay, a senior Bush administration official, and President Obama asked him to stay, and Secretary Geithner asked him to stay, uh, that was, to me, the signal that this had all been institutionalized at Treasury. And that was really Secretary Geithner's contribution, was the institutionalization of the strategic mission. Um, and then Secretary Liu um, was, I think, the, the, the first sec of those secretaries uh, to really regard um, that strategic mission as a central part of what he actually did on a daily basis. Um, and uh, you really saw Secretary of the Treasury, um, when he looked at himself in the mirror, in addition to all his other extraordinarily important responsibilities, he, right up there with any of them, would put the national security mission that he represented as the Secretary of the Treasury up there with the rest of them. Um, and uh, that's sort of the completion of, uh, of the mission. And I, uh, I hope uh, future Secretary Mnuchin is listening to this podcast, or when it's broadcast will be the actual Secretary Mnuchin, um, because uh, it's, a, it's a proud tradition uh, that he's inheriting and one that... Uh, I f hope and fully expect he will embrace and continue to carry forward. Fantastic. What a great way to end the podcast. Danny, a great way to introduce you to the listeners of FinCast. Uh, and again, we're privileged to have you, not only have you be a friend of ours, but to 
to now have you as, as a colleague. Um, and, you know, we're going to have more of these podcasts. Uh, Chip, as always, uh, fantastic to be doing this with you. And uh, to the listeners, hope you enjoyed it. We've got more coming your way, a lot more variety in the coming weeks and months. We hope you enjoyed it. Welcome aboard, Danny. Great being with you, Juan. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Danny.